0: Greetings, little warriors, and welcome back to our brand new podcast, Little Wars FM. For the benefit of listeners who may find this episode years from now, this is September 2020, and uh, congratulations for surviving the coronavirus and the utter hell that was the year 2020. And if you're a listener tuning into this podcast in real time, uh, what a year, huh? Boy, it's been fun. So why don't we take a welcome break from the joys of lockdowns, riots, and relentless politics to talk about the more simple pleasures of wargaming? If you've been following our YouTube channel, and I certainly hope you have, then you know that we've just come back from a several-month break with a new slate of video content focusing on the state of the hobby and where it might be going in the years ahead. Depending on who you ask, the historical wargaming hobby is in demographic decline, or it's growing, or maybe it's stagnant. That's a question we're continuing to explore in today's interview with a true industry insider. I'm talking today to someone in a position to shape the future of our hobby in a way that few others are.
1: I'm Phil Smith. I'm the head of Osprey Games, and I pretty much run the the gaming side of Osprey's operation.
0: That's right. Today, we have the pleasure to talk to Phil Smith, the head of Osprey Games. If you're a military history buff, a wargamer and a book nerd, then chances are you have multiple Osprey books on your shelf at home, packed with gorgeous artwork and color plates. Wargamers around the world have used Ospreys for decades as uniform guides and references for painting miniatures. But in more recent years, Osprey began publishing wargame rules. And you've probably seen some of those rules in their prolific Blue Book series, or their collaborations to produce big systems, like Bolt Action, Frostgrave, or a game that we reviewed on our channel, Force on Force. Phil and his team are based in the UK, and we are very grateful that he carved out an entire hour to talk to us by phone about the future of miniature wargaming, and how Osprey, as a company, is preparing to navigate that future. We'll talk about how they develop new games, what's been popular in recent years, and where Phil sees the gaming industry going next. Why are there so many skirmish wargames these days? Why are rules getting shorter? And what's the one Osprey game you've never heard of before that Phil thinks is one of their best? Those questions are just the tip of the iceberg in this fantastic conversation with a true industry insider and thought leader in the world of wargaming. So without further ado, let's jump onto the call with Phil Smith.
1: Hey there. As you can tell from my lack of a proper English accent, this is not Phil Smith. Rather, it's Little Wars TV Steve, three-time winner of War Soldiers and Strategies' Sexiest wargamer Alive competition. Before we get into Greg's interview with Phil, I want to remind everyone that our new podcast, Little Wars FM, is supported by our generous patrons and fans. If you enjoy this podcast, the public episodes you can listen to for free, like this one, are only a fraction of what's available exclusively through Patreon to our loyal supporters, and we'd love for you to become one. Little Wars FM is just one of the many perks and rewards we offer our patrons, so when you have a minute, go check out our page at patreon.com slash littlewars.tv. Now, back to the show. Hello. How are you, Phil? I'm good, Greg. How are you?
0: Very good. Thank you.
1: Yeah, good. Good. Sorry uh, running just a little late. Uh,
0: not a problem at all.
1: It's one of those emails that just pops into your inbox, and you think, "Oh, I
0: can't really ignore this." <laughs> uh, I appreciate you carving out a little bit of time for an interview.
1: No, not at all. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the invite.
0: Well, you're you're definitely what qualifies, I think, as like an industry insider uh, <laughs> at your level, but. Uh, Take me back, if you don't mind, before you were a big deal uh, into your (laughs) earlier days, uh, professionally, but also as a war gamer. Uh, Could you just tell me a little bit about your background?
1: Yeah, so I think uh, like most people, I kind of got into it uh, via Games Workshop, Um, White Dwarf 179. I was just (laughs) talking about that with some colleagues the other day. Yeah, Love of Toy Soul just kind of came from there. Prior to that, though, I was always interested in history, especially military history. And that I put squarely at the front door of my mother who bought me a copy of an Asterix, um, book when I was in an airport and Asterix just kind of started the ball rolling military history, history in general. And that led me once I found games workshop and, and war gaming, um, it led me into things like DBA and uh, a brief dalliance with Warhammer Historical and things like that. And yeah, kind of around the same time as I found Wargaming, I was really just reading as much Osprey as I could. So uh, when I applied for the Osprey job, uh, I think I I swayed it probably more on my knowledge of the list than on any actual qualifications I had. Um <laughs> So yeah, it it was just kind of a coming together of of a lot of interests, a lot of loves.
0: As as a wargamer, do you call yourself primarily a historical wargamer, or do you do do both? Uh,
1: I'm a a magpie. Um, (laughs) I really am. Uh, I think I tend to prefer historical settings and historical games, but I without doubt play far more sci-fi fantasy than I do anything else. And I suspect that's as much the people around me, you know, the guys that uh, I have to play with um, as it is anything else. I paint mostly fantasy as well because I'm an inveterate kit basher. So that's just, my. my for me the hobby, the real joy is in kit bashing and converting. Um, I'm not a very good painter. <laughs> so my pleasure really comes from that that first mucking around with plastics and obviously fantasy and sci-fi the the real winners for that because you know if you smush multiple kits together it still comes out looking reasonable it's not like you put a roman head on a teutonic body or something and (laughs) hope for the best although i have done that
0: Well, now that, you, um, now that you are the head of Osprey Games, I'm sure you get to hear a lot of pitch proposals for games and for projects. Yep. And, and I'm guessing those kind of tend to go in waves, depending on the current zeitgeist. So, what um, oh, sure. o- over the last couple of years, what have you just been getting bombarded with most frequently? What's the wave that's oh. sort of crashing right now?
1: I mean, if you'd asked me a few years back, I'd have said zombies, no question asked. Um at the minute we tend we tend to get a fair few aviation topics through because aviation's not something we've really touched in the wargaming list um is a strong term uh i don't, I can't recall a time aside from when we announced that Osprey Wargames was open for you know all the submissions you care to send us. <laughs> I don't think I've ever really been inundated um. More of a a trickle than a deluge. We've had a few um, modern topics come through recently. Um, Modern skirmish-ish level stuff. Obviously it's it's somewhat tricky to answer without going, oh yes, we've got X, Y, and Z coming in the future. So uh, so, some stuff we haven't yet announced that's already in the system. um, And just waiting on uh, a bit more meat on the bones before we start showing off covers and the like.
0: Well, you mentioned um, aviation as a topic yeah. that, you, that you've that you been getting pitched a lot, at least recently. Is there a reason why you haven't done a game in that, done much in that niche before? Is that something you were trying to stay away from or did it just kind of work out that way? You didn't get around to it?
1: It's definitely not a conscious effort on our parts. Um, I think, to be perfectly honest, it's mainly the format of... The, both the game proposals that come in and also a book focused approach, so aviation games or certainly the ones we've we've had pitched to us they're good games there's no two ways about that, but they have piles and piles of uh cards you know yes. or dashboards for the various aircraft and that the same's true of some naval games we've we've seen and that's great if you're set up to produce those and, and deliver that package. It doesn't translate particularly well into the kind of classic Osprey, here is your book approach. Um, certainly it's more viable for some things than others Obviously, You know, an, an Osprey war games, one of the blue books, you're constrained by page count, let alone anything else. So yeah, it's just tricky to kind of find a fit. And one of the things I've always tried to hold to is to make the product fit the game rather than shoehorn the game into a set format. Now, obviously, Osprey War Games does kind of tiptoe towards the other end of that spectrum in that it does have a set format, set design, set word count. But even then, we've tried to accommodate, you know, it's not like it has to be in this structure or, has to follow these rules you have to include this that and the other so yeah right now it's we've not had something that that we can really fit into our system nicely but it's not something i'm opposed to i'd love to do an aviation game and we do have something in the slightly distant future that is perhaps a stepping stone towards that um but yeah it's extra products and just fitting all of that material into our formats that's quite quite tricky at the moment you
0: mentioned you mentioned the format you mentioned the blue book Hmm. series and the uh the page count it's hard not to notice as a consumer that all of the osprey sort of blue book games they're all the same thickness and they all seem to play in about two to three hours you know an evening game is is that a a conscious determination that you guys made that that was the sweet spot for you. How did you settle on that count and that you wanted to keep them all the same length? Uh,
1: So it really grew out of um, the Osprey military list, um, which is um, same format um, and similar extent. So the elite series is exactly the same physical product, essentially 64 pages and you know, same, size and the idea was that we could do those kind of books easily and quickly and inexpensively and applying that approach to war games would allow us to produce things that weren't perhaps going to be produced in such a way through other channels. So a force on force or a, a bolt action, a field of glory. They're big, chunky books, big mainstream topics. You can easily put out the kind of classic hardback um, and make them available like that. Some of the smaller games we we started off looking at were the ones that maybe would have been harder to fit into a large, expensive hardback approach. So up, up until... Um, Up until the start of the Osprey wargame series, we'd only done things like Field of Glory and Force on Force, which kind of followed that traditional format. So this was, I don't want to say discount games, because I think that does the games a disservice. But it was smaller, tighter, more thematic games, perhaps, in some ways. You know, they played with genres or periods that were more niche and thus less likely to to kind of carry a bigger, more expensive product. So Gaslands is the prime example of that. I am so pleased that the response to it was what it was. And Mike Hutchinson deserves all the credit in the world for that game. But when that proposal came in, it was, oh, this looks really fun. This is a great little game. Oof. Matchbox cars though. I mean, is that really a hardback book? And you know what? We, we went the wrong way. We did it as an Osprey war games to start with. And yeah, Um, we, we made right and did a hard back down the line. So, you know, we can, we can tidy up after ourselves, but yeah, that's the one that some of my colleagues just keep reminding me. It's like, well, you didn't see that coming. I was like, no, no, I did not.
0: (laughs) So uh, it feels to me that miniature war games have just, they've been getting shorter and shorter not just in page count but in play duration and you know maybe that's a byproduct of people's attention spans just being shorter but it feels like every new game is being marketed as fast play and streamlining you know streamlining is the big buzzword people are taking old sets of rules and streamlining them so that they can be shorter and shorter um is that the new norm is that something that you see just like continuing or will the pendulum ever swing back the other way to Longer more expansive games.
1: I don't know. I think I think you're absolutely right. It's that kind of That kind of quick to get into pick up and play Hit the ground running style of game has a lot of appeal Um, Lower investment in all regards figures, you know expenditure time spent preparing um, time spent playing so you can get to the good stuff quickly there's a definite appeal there and i think the the appeal of moving huge armies across a large tabletop for you know a whole evening that's always going to be there but it's not one that's achievable or accessible to people straight out the gate for obvious reasons you know, it's great if you've got that large army and a new rule set comes out, so you can go, okay, yeah, I'll repurpose my you know, American Civil War army and I'll try it with this system. That's great, but that's the minority, I think, um, of players. You know, If a system comes out, you want to give it a go, you want to dive into it, and the ones that gain the most traction are the ones that can be experienced quickest. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's not going to change anytime soon. But that said, I don't think it's necessarily a death knell for the, the bigger game either. Um, and, you know, you look at things like uh, Black Powder and Hail Caesar. Okay, it plays fast, but maybe it's more of a hybrid approach. It's a larger game that they streamline areas where they can. They make it fast play. So they, they're kind of bringing that mentality into the larger scale of game. So hopefully there's there's enough room for for all kinds of play styles. It'd be a bit sad if uh, if everything went skirmish and I say that as a you know a big fan of skirmish wargaming. But uh, well,
0: skirmish wargaming seems to be all the uh, all the rage for the past yeah. few years. Um, although I know you guys uh, are just uh, coming out with a, a big mass battle game, not a historical yeah. game, more of a fantasy game. No.
1: No, uh, yeah, Oathmark uh, dropped in April for UK and rest of the world, and unfortunately, uh, June for, for North America. Um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a step towards the larger game, but um, like I was just saying, it does have that kind of quick play attitude towards it. You're, only ro- you're not rolling multiple dice multiple times to figure out every step of a combat. Um, it's by the same designer as Frostgrave. And if you're familiar with that system, it's you know one roll rules, um, essentially. And it's very much from that same school of thought. Different system. It's obviously not just trying to do Frostgrave with 40, 50, 60 figures aside. But it's definitely from that same end of the gameplay uh, spectrum. So yeah, uh, it seems to be popular seems to be going well so
0: so we just we just got our hands on it uh, as a club and actually we're going to be running our first game of it this weekend so we're excited Excellent. to try it because our ours is a club where we like to do big mass battle games more, yes, more often than, than skirmish <laughs> games but in the case of Oathmark let's use that as an example so when that proposal comes to you How did you decide that that was going to be a nice, glossy, hardback, sort of tentpole release versus a a blue book, something that was going to be thinner and leaner?
1: Um, Unfortunately, you've picked the only bad example you could have there. Um, Oathmark is the first um, game that has been designed entirely in-house by Osprey. So um, Joseph McCullough, the designer, the author, he is... He's in a very odd situation. He is an Osprey employee. Um, that's where we met. That's where um, we we got the, uh, well, he got the idea for Frostgrave from. But until Oathmark, his game design has been done on a freelance basis as, as Joseph rather than as Osprey. Um, with Oathmark, though, it's the first one he's designed in-house. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that was a really easy decision. It was like, hey, Joe, write this game for me.
0: But you still could no, have made it a made blue book. I mean, just because it was designed in-house, yeah. that doesn't mean it had to be a big, glossy hardback. No, so. that,
1: that is true, but it was, it was always conceived of as being a bigger, ongoing series um, to be supported with supplements. And obviously, we were working with North Star on the figure project. And as a whole, it was just conceived of from the start as a larger more involved, ongoing project. <laughs> to, to actually answer your question, um, the decision really just comes down to what is the best fit for the game. You know, is it something that is going to appeal to enough people that we can we can really ramp up the production, make it hardback, make it glossy, throw in more artwork? Um, or is it something that's going to have quite niche appeal and might struggle to to reach an audience if it's priced at, you know, thirty dollars versus fifteen, say. So yeah, it's it's kind of a juggling act. Um, generally speaking, if we see something as an ongoing series, or if we commission a project that comes in proposed as a series, it's almost never going to be one of the blue books. Um, just so we can give it its own branding, we can give it its own look, its own feel, and actually make it a series rather than just one of the one of the blue book line. We've we've dabbled in that in the past, but that was kind of in the early days as an ad hoc measure rather than something we've planned to do. So, so yeah, it's and obviously the scale of the game um, with a fixed word count to hit sixty four pages if something is clearly going to come in under or significantly over you know i don't like turning around and going well it's a good game but you're going to have to cut a third of it if you want it published so we try and we try and find what fits the game best but generally i think he says optimistically i think we find the best approach for the games that we publish
0: so. Well, let's uh, let's talk about some of those niche games. I mean, you guys have a mm. huge library at this point of both the big releases and the Blue Book series, and I think maybe that means that it's also easier for good games to kind of get lost in the shuffle, maybe get overshadowed because of all the releases. So um, yeah. can you think of one set of rules in your lineup right now that you wish got more attention, maybe like a, a hidden gem in the Osprey lineup, wow. which is like a brilliant game, but it – never got a lot of publicity.
1: Uh, a Fistful of Kung Fu, um, which was one of our earlier um, blue books. Um, Andrea Foley of Ganesha Games um, and Song of Blades and Heroes fame. It's, it's a homage to um, Big Trouble in Little China, Hard Boiled, all those John Wu action movies Um, Shaw Brothers Kung Fu it's it's a a genre that I absolutely love you could put together a a film playlist for this and there would be the majority of them in my top 50 films of all time Um, it's one I love it's a great little system it lets you just throw everything at everything and it's it's just niche it's it's really niche. And that's very it's, niche. It's, yes, <laughs> it is really niche. Um, I think it's it deserves a, a a broader audience than it it has, um, and it's yeah, it's just one I'm I'm really really fond of. That's that's going back a fair ways. I think that was number six in the blue book line. So
0: nice. Well, thank you for the suggestion. Hopefully, people will uh, take you up on that. And uh, I, hope so. I hope so. I hope so. Um, but let's go now to the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's go to something that is, has already found a lot of popularity. I want to ask you about your Undaunted series. Um, so for those, for those who are listening, who might not be familiar, could you give them the elevator pitch for Undaunted? And then, um, I want to ask you about how this game kind of blurs the line between what you would expect from a board game and a miniature game. And do you think that that kind of cross-pollination is a trend that we're going to be seeing more of, maybe not just from Osprey, but industry-wide?
1: Okay, right. So Undaunted is a series of World War II deck builders that combines a deck building mechanic with what is essentially a skirmish war game or a platoon-level war game. It's The first um, release was Undaunted Normandy, and that was based on the designer's um, grandfather's experiences during the uh, Normandy campaign and runs through a series of scenarios with various objectives, capture certain resource points, you know, inflict a number of casualties. So there's a story driven scenario based element to the system. It's being followed up with new releases, North Africa, which um, rather than the US and German forces that, North, uh, that Normandy, sorry, brought to the table, this one introduces the Long Range Desert Group and the Italians. It adds vehicles to the, uh, the mix, reconnaissance planes, and obviously new scenarios that reflect fighting in a new theater. Still the same underlying mechanics, a deck builder, you reinforce your squad, you send them out, and each card represents one of your troops. So as you're playing the game and you're losing cards, as cards are being added to your hand, the actual reinforcements, as you're losing troops, you're losing cards. So it's, it plays very much like a skirmish war game in that regard. You've got a finite number of resources. This is how you handle them. You choose what they're going to do. And when you lose those resources, you lose your options. So yeah, deck builder, but a war game as well. Um, and we've just announced uh, reinforcements, which is due for release in the future. I can't remember when, unfortunately. And that adds new elements to both Normandy and North Africa and adds a solo mode to the game. So this is the line as a whole. It's Yeah, a deck-building war game. It's an odd concept, um, and I'm not sure I can probably better explain it than that. If you're familiar with either concept, I think you can kind of get it together. Um, There's loads of gameplay videos online, so if you want to see it in action, it's easily done. I think it just hits a sweet spot between board gamers that want to war game without actually being a war gamer, and war gamers that... Perhaps want to play board games without stepping too far out the familiar comfort zone, or want to try, you know, a slightly more old-fashioned style of war game. You know, it's it's not quite hex and shit, but it's not far removed. Tiles obviously lay out the the map for each scenario, and you've got your little discs of uh, of troops to move around the place. So I think yeah, there's a there's a quite Charming retro element to it for some players.
0: So you're hyping well. up the retro element, but when I first played Undaunted Normandy, and I'm, I just got North, the, the North Africa version, I can't wait to break it out. I didn't see it as retro at all. I saw it as maybe a glimpse into the f- into the future. It's blending elements of different genres, and we've mm. seen so much cross pollination. In the past couple of years, between you know board game mechanics that are getting borrowed and ported into miniature wargaming, and this takes that even to another level. And I'm wondering if does this represent sort of the future of maybe where the hobby is going, sort of blurring lines between them.
1: I, th- I think the the retro element is mainly down to the components, you know, it's, and and less so the mechanics, as you say. It's deck building is a relatively novel. Um, <laughs> It's by no means novel at this stage, but it's a relatively new element to the, the board gaming and the card game arsenal. Gamers have always kind of dipped in and out of various things. I mean, I'm a role player as much as a, a war gamer. Um, and people like to, to mix things together. Uh, you know, great tastes that taste great together is, is a saying for a reason. I mean, it's why I like campaign driven skirmish games. I like that kind of role-playing aspect. However, light. uh, You know, a light touch is sometimes best. But, uh, yeah, no, I I definitely see increased pollination between the various strands of the, the broader hobby. And broader hobby, I include pretty much everything. You know, from video game mentality, you know, the idea of respawn points and health packs. Yeah, those kind of... Abstracted elements that you have to have in a in a video game. Yeah, you know, I see anything from that end of the spectrum to the kind of classic shoots and ladders style board game. I think there's there's room for everything to kind of come together in in certain areas, um, which is great because you know you know gateway drugs you find a a board game style element you like you might go oh i enjoyed that in game x let's try game y which is you know taking it to a a different place or a slightly more extreme focus yeah role playing especially is like that for me Uh, someone will recommend a game and say oh if you like this try this or bibliographies they're the worst for history books you know I'll I'll pick something up as a quick primer and I'll find myself doing a deep dive into the primary and secondary sources. And I'll be just, oh no, this is, this is a rabbit hole.
0: (laughs) That's a rabbit hole that historical war gamers tend to like to go down though. I I want (laughs) to ask you about specifically uh, historical war games. And I know Osprey has done, you know, sci-fi and fantasy releases, of course, but You know, I think a lot of us, myself included, first encountered Osprey through its military history, you know, color plate books. I mean, I've got dozens and dozens of Ospreys on the shelf behind me. Uh, But the audience for historical war games clearly skews a lot older than the audience for sci-fi and fantasy war games. Um, You, as, as the head of Osprey Games, do you spend a lot of time... Worrying about the age gap and asking yourself how you can find younger players to get them into historicals, or is it is it just it is what it is, and you don't worry about the age discrepancy?
1: I think it is what it is to a large degree. Um, I do think younger gamers skew more towards fantasy and sci-fi. Um, I was actually chatting about this with with uh, Joe McCullough earlier today, and he made a very good point that the movies people grew up with are very different these days in terms of genres compared to what they were you know the the kind of big budget war movie still a thing but it's by no means as prevalent as it used to be whereas you have the superheroes the sci-fi you know that's the dominant genre or that's a more dominant genre these days yeah i think i hope there'll always be a place for history certainly the fact that there's so many releases of rule sets and um figure ranges across the industry is a hopeful sign that it's not going anywhere i think the proportion of fantasy sci-fi players to historicals will keep going up that's sadly uh almost an inevitability, especially as Games Workshop is, as I was saying earlier, most people's introduction to the hobby. Um, You kind of get them hooked on elves and aliens to start with. It's hard going back, man. Um, But no, I certainly hope historical will continue to have a place. I don't see it dying off anytime soon. Um, And, you know, you've got people like Firelock Games that are doing historical stuff now and giving it a proper big budget, you know, high gloss attention, you know, going by the reception that that that's had, I don't think, I don't think historicals is going anywhere. We just need some, we just need some bloody good TV shows to come out to really hook people's attention. We need more, more Peaky blinders, more kind of gladiator, more, you know, Saving Private Ryan. We need another Saving Private Ryan, get one of those out and, Pick, a, pick an underserved historical period and really ramp it up. Do, I don't know, Alexander's Successes or something.
0: So tell uh, me, tell, tell me, tell me an underserved historical period.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Um, I have really, really random interest for history. I would love to see stuff on, um, I'd love to see more interwar stuff. Warlord China is a fascinating period um it's just again it's so niche uh revolutionary mexico is another one that's of particular interest i'd like to see china in general get a bit more attention um probably more in terms of figure ranges there's not a huge number out there when you compare it to say samurai ranges and i think there's there'd be some really cool models to to come out of that i'd like to see more um South American topics. Um, Perry's have obviously d- just released. Uh, was it War of the Pacific? There's just a lot. There's a lot of cool uniforms for painters. There's a lot of cool history that's gone, you know, overlooked by a lot of people because you know who who you you hear about the football war just because it's called the football war. You actually start reading about it. It's like, oh, that's pretty cool. That's interesting stuff. Didn't know about that.
0: So if somebody comes to you. And Let's say tomorrow you get a pitch proposal. You get an email and it's for a game a niche game uh, for revolutionary Mexico Something that you just mentioned was interesting but underserved Uh, How do you weigh whether a certain historical niche is going to have enough appeal to make it worth you even? Including in the blue book series. I mean, how do you make that determination because some of these do get really niche?
1: Mm, Absolutely Gut instinct is is the starting point, and it's a bit chicken egg. But looking at what ranges are already on the market um, is another kind of solid gauge. So um, you know, we taking the example of um, revolutionary Mexico, pulp figures obviously has a line there, developing new ones, I believe. There's a couple of others knocking around out there, but it's not massively overserved in terms of figures. The question would be given what is out there, is there enough for people to actually play a game? Or is it just going to fall flat because people can't acquire what you're asking of them? No matter how good the historical research is, no matter how entertaining the rule system, if there's that barrier, it's it's not going anywhere.
0: What kind of volume do you feel like you need to hit in order to make something like minimally worthwhile? I mean, if you oh. can't sell a thousand copies of a game, is that a game that's just not worth doing?
1: We do we do have kind of lines in the sand, but by and large, they vary quite considerably. Um, and obviously, the, you know, we're not just the games team in isolation. There's sales and marketing and. There's a load of people whose input we get and who have a say in whether we uh, proceed with a project or not. Um, the initial hurdle though is like I say, it's the, the core games, the editorial side of things, which is, do we think this is, do we think this has legs? And even if it's a little bit niche, if we really like some of the stuff that's going on there, you know, if we love the, the mechanics, if we love the kind of approach to a campaign system, we'll try and work with the author to see if we can develop it in such a way as to make it more viable. You know, it might be a case of like I said earlier, you know, I don't like saying, well, cut a third, but if that's the only way of doing it, if look, you know, this is a huge book, it would have to be a 300 page hardback. It's just not going to work. But if we can distill this down and maybe do it like this, What do you say? So we you know, it's not just it's not just kind of Osprey sat there as, you know, this this kind of spider in a web waiting for proposals to come in and then pouncing on them. I do try and encourage this back and forth with our authors. And you know, with the exception of Oathmark, all the games remain creator owned. So it's a it's very much a two way street. If they if they want to see something or if they want to bring something to the table, we'll work with them to try and accommodate that, um, rather than just going nope doesn't fit.
0: Are your authors individually uh, are they paid a flat fee for the game or do you make them commission based sales where the volume dictates how they do?
1: It? It's all royalty based. Um, so. The, the better a product does, the better the author benefits. It's the fairest way of doing that uh, that we found. It's too small a hobby to, to, to you know, just go out, go into business for oneself. It's, it's got to work for everyone. Otherwise, it doesn't work for anyone. So
0: so you, a, a minute ago, you mentioned that when you're trying to decide whether to commission a new game, there is a little bit of a gut instinct. There's a judgment call. So part of your job, of course, is to kind of see what's around the corner, what you think is going to be popular in a couple of years, and make those judgment calls. Can you take me back through the last five or six years and, uh, and do what every head of game design hates to do? And tell me one that you missed. A judgment call where, <sighs> you, you, where you missed it one way or the other. And you already mentioned that you think that you missed Gaslands, that you may underestimate. Oh, I, I know that I missed later.
1: Gaslands. Um, <laughs> so there's
0: one. There's one example.
1: Ga- gaslands is the really the obvious one. That's a good question. I don't think I have a. I don't think I have one as dramatic as that. To be perfectly honest, that was the one that that just shocked me. Um, shocked everyone, I think, is fair to say. Frostgrave, as well, to a degree. Um, that had really humble origins as a as an original concept it was like I say joe obviously an employee at the time that still is i should say um we were just chatting back and forth about fantasy wargaming, and he was moaning about not being able to find one that did exactly what he wanted so i essentially said well write it then and i'll if it's Good. We'll put it in the in the OWG in the Osprey Wargames series. So yeah, that was originally conceived of as as a blue book, and then Joe, being Joe, I think it got slightly overwritten or slightly uh, larger in his head, and there was another conversation. It was like, well, okay, let's make it a bit bigger, and it eventually became you know the book it is today. And that one was probably a more positive. Um, we caught that one early. Uh, earlier and, and acted accordingly. But yeah, apart from Gaslands, that's, that's such a, an obvious one. It's kind of overshadowing any other consideration I might have.
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you to pull out the crystal ball then and let's, uh, let's look five plus years out from right now. So let's look out to 2025. Um, what's the next big thing that people aren't talking about right now in the hobby that you think we might be talking about. You don't have to get into like a specific game title that you're developing, but I'm talking about <sighs> genres, sort of a, a bigger picture look at where you think we're going in the next five years.
1: Oof. Big questions. I think we're overdue a really big licensed property war game. I think we've had, We've had a few little ones, um, decent-sized properties, but not games that have really taken off. It's Like um, Aliens vs Predator, um, figures are there, games there. It's just not a. It's not really seemed to land. Obviously, the Middle Earth um, stuff from Games Workshop is the kind of the the obvious one.
0: Or what about Star Wars Although, Legion from Fantasy Flight? I was, gonna,
1: I was gonna say this comes back to your to your argument about um board games blending over and board game companies kind of coming in. So we've had Game of Thrones and Star Star Wars. Yeah, I'm I'm probably thinking more traditional rather than that board game style box approach, but that's yeah, perhaps a little naive. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think to be perfectly honest, I don't see that much of it being played it's it's not something that's very local here so um yeah but there's no there's no doubting it's it's popular
0: so is osprey and are you out there looking for potential big ip that you could approach to license uh to do a game like that is is that part of your job thinking about big ip partnerships
1: it's a consideration um and we've we've dabbled with IPs in the past uh, on the board game side of things, um, so we obviously did uh, a couple of Judge Dredd games. Mm-hmm. Um, we've worked with um, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell and uh, the Sarah J Mass novels. Um, I think it's harder for wargaming because with most properties you can apply it to board and card games much more easily than you can the big battle stuff. That you see in all the the more combat oriented stuff you see in war games, but uh, yeah, no, it's it's something we look for. It's not something we we necessarily hunt down that aggressively. If if we have something that's right or we have an idea that fits, yes, it's something we'll we'll look into. But it's not it's not the be all and end all of our approach to to. Um, producing games i'd rather have a good game with no license than you know a mediocre game with a license in some respects
0: do you think if we looked into that crystal ball five years out that you would see more osprey games being developed in-house is that a part of the future
1: yeah it absolutely is it's not going to be an overwhelming shift in a in a general strategy. There's also going to be support for the ones we already produce. So Oathmark, for example, that's in-house. We're not just going to stop producing Oathmark stuff and produce a new game. There's going to be support for Oathmark, which is part of the in-house process as well. So mm-hmm. it's um, yeah, it's another string to the bow, rather than a change of bow entirely, to give you a really convoluted uh, metaphor. <laughs>
0: One last question on the crystal ball. So Hmm. if we look out even maybe farther than five years, do you think that electronic formats, you know, PDFs, are you viewing those as a threat to your business model? Or are you viewing that as an opportunity? Because clearly more and more war game rules are going either all PDF, or available PDF. So how is that impacting your business?
1: Um there's no, i mean pdf sales digital sales have risen and risen, but they've not they've not kind of completely overwhelmed print sales like I think some people may have expected you know going back five ten years there's a joy to be had in a physical product, especially i think amongst gamers who are who certainly the ones of my acquaintance display a tendency towards A, hoarding and B, that magpie principle um, they like having the thing, they like having it on their shelves um, and I don't think a digital a digital system is going to ever really replace that entirely it's certainly easier, it's more portable, it's more accessible I get that, There's, it's not going away yeah, we we produce everything in in tandem anyway. So print and digital versions. I see. I've switched back. I, I jumped on the the Kindle bandwagon uh, when mm. it started. I was like, oh, this is great. Can free up book space. And I've gone completely back. I I much prefer that physical that physical experience of having a book and thumbing the pages. The other thing is wargaming, especially, is a very physical. Hobby anyway, tabletop simulator is and it's ilk are great, but you can't replace the experience fully. And wargaming, the figures especially, you know, you're you're slashing the hobby in half in a way if you if you go all digital. So um, so yeah, on on certain elements of the hobby, I think physical print is going to stay. Um, 3d sculpting is the more interesting one and 3d printing that's yeah, that's going to be a big swing. I think in a few years time, it's already getting there, but
0: is it a threat? Is it a threat to your business or an opportunity?
1: I mean, both, most, most things that are threats are also going to be opportunities if you look at them the right way. Um, it's a chance to make models more accessible. Um, it changes up how you deliver sculpts to the customer. You know, you don't have to invest in this expensive tooling to produce a frame of plastics. Um, You don't have to have, you know, trained staff and casting facilities to produce metal models or resin models. Um, So yeah, it's a definite change. And there are risks there, sure, there are threats, but there's a lot of opportunities, you know, um, so yeah, we're, our miniature involvement is is relatively secondary to the books. You know, obviously we work with North Star, we um, co-produce the Frostgrave and Oathmark lines of figures. But yeah, it's an interesting one. I look forward to seeing. It. I've started dabbling myself. I've not quite pulled the trigger on a three D printer, but I've started, you know, looking at the the STLs and stuff like that. They're not quite there for me yet. That's the thing. I, for, miniatures, for, no. for
0: miniatures, no. For miniatures, no. But for terrain, there's awesome uh, terrain. stuff out there for terrain. I mean, it's totally worth it.
1: Yeah, terrain terrain. I see definitely being ahead of the curve on that score.
0: Well, I uh, I really appreciate you have taken all this time, and I, I want to get you out of here on one last kind of <laughs> big question. I'm not going to oh, let okay. you off without the, without the big one. Um, so you can take this any direction you want. This is kind of a broad question, but in, in your opinion, you know, as an industry insider, what is the current health of the historical wargaming hobby? Is the historical gaming segment something that you view as maybe in a gradual decline, or are you more optimistic about the, the growth of that segment of your business?
1: I think... I think it is in a degree of decline. I don't think it's a particularly steep one. Um, I think so long as there are good historical games there, players will keep being refreshed. You know, you'll always get people moving over from fantasy and sci-fi to historical. I think I said earlier that the proportion is, is skewing more necessarily than the total numbers. I think we've got more players I just think more of them are playing fantasy and sci-fi so the the proportion is getting further apart but i'm yeah i'm confident that historical wargaming isn't going anywhere anytime soon um history is always going to interest people and people that find wargaming are always going to like history A proportion of them, sorry, I should say. Uh, I wish all of them liked history, that'd just be so much easier. Um, So I think so long as there are good games, good figures, and they're being made visible to people that are coming in or looking around from the fancy and sci fi end of the spectrum, I think historical wargaming will always have a place. And as you were saying earlier, you know, those kind of overlapping games are going to become increasingly important um, to help port new players into historical gaming. Anything that can kind of lower the barrier to entry of in-depth knowledge or research is going to be a good thing. So, yeah, I I don't think it's cause for concern at all. Um, I hope not, (laughs) Uh, both as a, a player and, you know, someone that works in the industry. Um, it just makes me very sad. But uh, Yeah, I, I feel like that's a bit of a cop-out answer, I'm afraid, but um, it's probably the best I've got.
0: Well, I, listen, I really appreciate you taking an hour to go through all these questions and talk about the state of the hobby and where you think things might be going. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to somebody who's got your kind of background and experiences.
1: No, it's been fun. Thank you.
0: Everybody was Kung-Fu
1: fighting Those kids were fast as lightning In fact, it was a little bit frightening But they fought with expert timing
0: This was awesome. This was a really great opportunity. Yeah, it's
1: been really fun. Um, I think this is the longest conversation I've had since lockdown began. Wow,
0: wow. I figured you were on Zoom all the time.
1: uh, Yeah, it's. Do you know what? It's. it's, It surprised me a bit at how easily we've adapted to it. I Mm. kind of went into it thinking, oh my god, this is just going to be such a hurdle to to start with. Um, But yeah, Fortnite in, it was like we'd never done it any other way, so. Yeah, you, know, you may not have guessed it from my answers, but I do love to talk about the hobby. Um,
0: so <laughs> I, I, I figured,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: Hey, are you still listening to this episode? Wow, you must be pretty committed to get this far or pretty lazy not to hit stop. Either way, since you're still here, I thought I'd take this opportunity to let you know that Little Wars FM is supported by our army of loyal patrons. Well, maybe army is a generous term. Let's let's call it an understrength regiment for now. What I'm trying to say is that if you're a fan of our YouTube channel or our podcast, we could absolutely use your support on Patreon. That helps us to buy better microphones, cameras, uh, film on location at battlefields, and do all the production work needed to give you the best wargaming content we possibly can. And if pure altruism and charity isn't your style, we're not beneath bribing you with some awesome perks. One of the many rewards that you could get on Patreon is full access to more episodes of this very show, Little Wars FM. The episodes that are publicly available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you found us are just a portion of what we've recorded. So if you want to hear more, head over to Patreon and check it out. Okay, now you've officially made it to the end of the episode.